Hi, welcome to Big Thinkers, Big Ideas. I'm Dr. Carla O'Dell, CEO of APQC, and in this series, I get to interview some of the most interesting people in the world. And today is no exception. I'll be talking to Dr. John Medina. John is a neuroscientist with a lifelong fascination with how the mind reacts to and organizes information, as am I. And any of you who happen to be interested in this whole area of information management and knowledge management feel the same way. If you happen to also be human, you will be interested in what John's doing to make brain science accessible and useful to the average person. And that's one of the reasons we're talking to him today, because he's going to be keynoting at APQC's annual knowledge management conference in Houston, talking about brain rules. What has he, what have he and other neuroscientists learned about how the brain works that will help us put our brains to work uh, better when we are at work? So welcome, John, and let's get started. Well, Carla, thank you for the invitation, and I'm happy to be aboard. So, okay, John, so what are brain rules, and why do they matter? Well, actually, the book Brain Rules was a reaction to, I was actually on an airplane, and I read a magazine that said, modern brain science can teach you, predict if you're going to vote for the Republican candidate or the Democratic candidate in a particular election. And I looked at that, and I said, we don't have that power. This is a bunch of mythology, and we deal with a certain amount of mythology throughout our, uh, uh, in our career. For example, you may have heard that you only use 10% of your brain. That's a myth. It's nonsense. You use 50 to 60% in a resting state. You may have heard that there is a left brain personality and a right brain personality. Also nonsense. You use both hemispheres to make a, a personality. And so I'm reading this book, and I heard this magazine, and these were the days on an airplane where you could throw something across the aisle and wouldn't hit anybody. There wasn't hardly anybody on the plane. And I got mad, and I just said, we can't, we're not that far. We don't know about this stuff. So I got home, and I told my wife that, and, and my wife said, you know, John, you can do a couple of things. You can throw stones at uh, the mythologies out there all you like and sit on your scientific high horse. Or you could write a book that talks about what we do know about how the brain works. Uh, and I took that advice, good counsel on the part of my wife, and created the book Brain Rules. And the brain rules themselves are 12 things we actually know in the laboratory that have been published in the peer-reviewed literature, replicated usually dozens of times, often in non-competing laboratories, things we absolutely know about how the brain processes information that actually might be relevant to business audiences and even education audiences. So that's what brain rules are and why they matter is because they're not an opinion. It is, for, the, for the, as much as we know, this is how the brain works. That is terrific. We love robust and valid information if we're going to be changing our behavior in any way. Um, can, what are some of the rules, John, and, uh, that would you think would be especially useful for people at work and in business? Well, hopefully all 12 of them are, but there are some that I think would stand out more than others. I know uh, the American workforce is increasingly stressed. Uh, we are constantly asking uh, uh, employees to do more with less and <clears throat> try to automate as many procedures as possible. We have these machines that uh, uh, beg the brain to multitask. And since the brain cannot multitask, depending on how you define multitask, all we do is end up getting stress responses. So one of the brain rules is this. Stressed brains don't learn the same way as non-stressed brains. In fact, I would argue that stressed brains don't learn at all. They have a very different set of priorities when you get stressed. 
But interestingly enough, when you peer down into the literature, the thing that actually hurts cognition for the most part, and if you are stressed, you can nick the two giant wings of human intelligence, crystallized intelligence, where there the things we can memorize, and fluid intelligence, which allows us to improvise off of those, um, off of our, our database. You can hurt both of those with the following. It turns out not to be the uh, a fact of the stress that causes bad stuff for the brain. What it turns out to be is your perceptions of control over the bad stuff. If you feel in control of some of the bad stuff that's happening to you, you might not even report it as stressful. And quite frankly, that sometimes is good for you. A little amount of stress can actually uh, potentiate certain types of cognitive gadgets. But the more out of control you feel, and Carly, you might remember the great, great work of Marty Seligman in the mid-60s who uh, coined the term learned helplessness. Mm-hmm. That's where a lot of these control uh, issues come from. The more out of control you feel over the aversive stimulus coming at you, the more likely you are to uh, experience the type of stress that can hurt productivity in the workforce. So the suggestion that I have for people when we're talking about stress is make a list and write down all the things that are bugging you and then rate the uh, various items on the list by your perceptions of control over them. If you feel like you are out of control over something, say rate that a 10. That's your bad guy. And if you feel in control of it, eh, maybe rate that a one or a two. That's, that's an okay. And focus on all those tens. Focus first on the ones where you feel out of control and do your best to uh, reexert a certain amount of control. So in thinking about that from the peer-reviewed uh, work coming right out of uh, a very large and established literature about feelings of helplessness and control, that's one of the brain rules that I think would be most relevant to business practice today. Because that's what executives could do. They could make their own list of what parts of the business environment are, are stressing them the most or that they feel the least control over and start picking those off. Even, this, it's so interesting, John. This is the third conversation I've had recently about uh, learned helplessness and control. And where, oh, uh, really? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's very timely. I mean, that's a big deal. Things, yeah. yeah. One of the things I've said for a decade and based on same kind of research you're talking about here is that if you can't give people real control, then give them as yeah. much information as possible so that their sense of at least predictability goes up. What in fact right. happens. And so in fact, I, predictability is itself. That's a very good thing you just said, Carla, because predictability is a very powerful part of feeling like uh, you are beginning to watch the stress leave because you have a certain amount of control over it. I think it's one of the reasons why scientists love to name things. We feel like we name things and we think we have a predictability. Oh, we saw that white tiger. That white tiger's name is X. If I see another white tiger, I'll give it that same name. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. I love these brain hacks. Make a list and rest, uh, you know, rate, the, rate them by the perception of, of lack of control and pick them off. I love that. Yeah, Thank you. Well, you right. And make that a hierarchy. Focus yeah, on those yeah. first. Yeah. Can't do everything, and not everything right. is equally stressful. And, and not all stress is bad for you. <laughs> oh, I think Kelly McGonigal is doing work on that, that it's the perception of it, just as you said before. Yeah, 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 absolutely right. Yeah. Well, we digress in a lovely direction, but let me get – I'm going to get sure. back to the work issue. For just a second. Okay, you so I, I've got this brain, John. You've got this brain. Yep. We all work in teams now, and our brains yep. then have to work with other brains. Are there yep. any particular brain rules that would be useful to us to know about that? Oh, man, yeah. And they come from several parts of the book, but there is uh, some literature that has um, 
in the uh, newer editions of the book, I think I begin to mention, this is the great work of Anita Woolley over at, uh, she used to be at MIT. And this is what she did. She knew that uh, increasingly American businesses and the American scientific effort, and I think virtually everything, except maybe if you're a sculptor or uh, a fine artist, um, you're working in a team. And so the question you can ask is this, do teams on average solve problems better than individuals? And that answer turns out to be yes, they do solve problems better. In fact, if you're on a team, you, you uh, and we put what's sometimes uh, called the McGrath circumplex inventory, which is just a way of, of assessing how well you, a team can solve a problem. Um, teams can solve, you know, get, get through the benchmarks in the time allotted about 72% of the time, which is amazing. And individuals are around 14 or 15. So teams really do better. But when Anita looked carefully at the data and started to drill down, she noticed that there were huge standard, uh, standard deviations. I guess I can say the statistics here, I suppose. Uh, there were huge wobbly. It was a wobbly result. That 72% figure, some teams, you know, were wonderful at solving problems, and some teams were horrible. And the question she asked was, what's up with this statistical turbulence? What separates? Why do some teams work really well and some teams don't work really well? And she found an answer, and it's a whopper, and it, uh, 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 it embraces several brain rules. Here's what it is. If a team has what she began to be called C factor, C for collective, C factor, if a team was rated with high C factor, if a team had high C factor, they solved problems beautifully. And if they had low C factor, they didn't solve problems very well at all. And so we should probably unpack what C factor is. C factor is composed of three variables, and you have to have all three of them, necessary and sufficient in order to get high C factor. Here's the first one. Number one, the teams had strong theory of mind scores. Now, theory of mind is a cognitive gadget that uh, allows you to peer inside someone else's psychological interior and with very few cues, verbal or nonverbal, uh, can figure out the rewards and punishment systems inside that person's head. It's, it's as close to mind reading, I think, as you're going to get, and you can measure it lots of different ways. Theory of mind literally gives you the ability to understand the intentions and motivations of someone else. And the first component of three for C-Factor is teams that, had, that scored really high on theory of mind tests, and there's a million of these. There's an IRI test. There's a, something called an RMET test. There's a ton of these things. Um, if you scored really high, then you were a good, then you were a productive team member. So that's the first characteristic. Here's the second characteristic. When you videotape the teams that were busy solving problems, she noticed an astonishing behavior. Carla, nobody interrupted each other. There was deep and bilateral conversational turn-taking. So powerful was this that if someone wasn't speaking a lot, so no one's going to dominate, but if someone didn't hear from another, uh, the group would actually turn to them and say, you know, you're a valuable team member here. Uh, we haven't heard from you. Do you have anything to say about this? There was no interruption. And as a result, that may be uh, partially explainable by the theory of mind stuff, but they were, in fact, um, I'm just going to use the word polite. What I really mean is that they didn't interrupt each other and gave each, everybody else full, full, uh, uh, full airtime. The third characteristic, and it's a bombshell, it's the presence of women. I'm not making this up. The more women there are in the group, up to I think she titrated it to about 50%, the higher the C factor. The lower 
uh, amount of women in the group, the lower the C factor. And from this day, if you uh, to uh, uh, to to now, if you really wanted to have a team work really well and solve problems in a very powerful fashion, you should screen everybody for these three characteristics: theory of mind, ability to interrupt or not interrupt, and make sure that there are that the teams are gender balanced. That's a powerful thing to say, but it is not an opinion. It is apparently how teams work together well. John, that's fascinating. Let me ask you on the question about how this C factor might, uh, especially the second factor, which is the ability to turn taking and no interruptions, how that might work in a virtual environment. So many of our teams now are virtual. We can can certainly uh, stack the deck by putting enough women on them. We can... uh, for that, but to in order to have a, a theory of mind, which is the other one, you have to. Yeah. It helps to see the other person because what you're trying to do is figure out what motivates them, what's their intentions. Uh, we could probably do some exercises that uh, you know, team building exercises that will help you with that. But yeah. uh, what are your thoughts on on uh, the no interruptions turn taking one? Yeah, well, uh, Anita has actually measured virtual team interactions as, and and than face-to-face, and she finds that C-factor is powerful in both milieus. Obviously, the more face-to-face interactions you can have, the more robust the finding is going to be. But she has actually published papers with virtual teams and has shown that if C-factor is paid attention to, people don't interrupt each other, that there's strong theory of mind and that there is uh, um, the presence of women in the group, um, she still gets the same problem-solving power that comes if they're all in one spot. Now, some things that she has not done, and there's, a, there's several of these, uh, and it's just more work to do. It's, it's terrific work. There just needs to be – you need to drill down on this. Uh, one of them might be, that's good for the acute. What about for the long term? Many companies these days are really concerned about retaining their employees, especially in a low uh, unemployment rate economy like we have currently. If you're going to retain your employees, one of the reasons why you want to do that is that if, as people get to know each other and the teams get more in sync, it's a little bit like having a football team that is very experienced and they're used to working together and they know each other's strengths and weaknesses. The more long-term you can get it, the better it is. And that probably requires uh, face-to-face communication real live inside a building. So that, since the work, since the long-term versus the acute hasn't been done, there's not much I can say about that. But my guess is is that the more you can form an extant community, and these get, people get to know each other's children, they get to know each other's, uh, whether they like spaghetti or not, the things that normally come from just normal social interactions, the more the higher their C-factor is going to be. But that's a guess, Carla. That's, that's not empirical. All right. Well, let's, let's think about this. So there's 12 brain rules, and we haven't had a chance to cover them all today, nor will we. Uh, that's why we have you keynoting at the conference. But if you, had, if you had to pick one, John, that you think might have uh, for today that really bears some relevance for knowledge management, which is the whole art and science of trying to uh, help people use and leverage the knowledge they and their colleagues have for the uh-huh. yeah. Um Any brain rules that kind of pops out at you for that? Boy, for sure. Two of them, and I'll rank them. I'll do, the, I'll do number one first. Uh, and it's a growing literature, and this is going to sound a little weirdly practical or maybe like your, like your uh, uh, family doc, but I don't mean it to be at all. And it is paying ridiculous amounts of, uh, of attention to how much sleep everybody's getting. Mm-hmm. No kidding. 
that's it. I'm going to unpack that because we are beginning to understand that the inability to get the amount of sleep that you need profoundly influences virtually everything that you would hold of value in a knowledge management environment, from being able to recall data sets to getting along with people to being able to create curricula and, and teach that curricula. Uh, you can take your pick. It covers the whole gamut. Because if you don't get enough sleep, so many different things begin to go offline. Here's the profound understanding. Uh, um, in fact, the brain rule is sleep states are as important to the learning process as awake states. For the longest time, Carla, we had no idea why you needed to sleep. Uh, sleep is not energy restorative, by the way. If you do the bioenergetics curves, there's only a couple of times during the night that you are uh, uh, saving energy. In fact, uh, your brain is more rhythmically active at night than it is during the day, and even your peripheral musculature, I mean, everybody who sleeps knows that they move around. Most people don't just stay in like a coma in, in bed. They move around a whole lot. So there's a lot of muscular activity, too. And we have been uh, just confounded for the longest time. Well, then why do you need to sleep? From an evolutionary perspective, that is an extremely expensive behavior to have because you're vulnerable for seven to eight hours. Well, we have begun to understand the answer, and the answer is amazing. What happens at night is that when certain parts of your brain turn off and other parts of your brain turn on, so it's still active, you begin reviewing all of the things you learned during the day. And you begin repeating that learning over and over again, thousands of times at night. If you don't get enough sleep, this is one of the reasons why I am the stark enemy of all-nighters. People in knowledge management are notorious for spending all-nighters. That's the stupidest thing they could do. That's like cutting off your legs because you think you could run faster. It's a dumb thing to do. What happens is that you repeat things over and over again at night. We now know why you need to sleep. At least we're getting a handle on it. You don't need to sleep to save energy because you're not saving any energy. You need to sleep so you can turn off all the other sensory apparatus that your brain would normally be available to. Eyes open, ear response to auditory information, taste, smell. You turn all those things off so you can concentrate on what happened to you during the course of the day and remember it. You don't need to sleep so you can rest. You need to sleep so you can learn. That's true. That's the most important. Yep. I think, yeah, all that, all that trouble we go through to make pe sure people get the right information at the right time is not going to do them any good if they can't learn from it. Right. And you can actually show that it can take uh, – if you need eight hours of sleep per, per night, this is an experiment that's actually been done. Um, you, if you need eight hours of sleep per night and we – take you to the laboratory, and let's say you're good at math. Let's say you're really good at calculus. You, you normally score on 92% if I give you, you know, a series of derivatives to solve something, uh, a math, your math competence. And I uh, 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 wake you up after six hours of sleep for five nights in a row. So you need eight hours of sleep, but I'm not going to let you get eight hours. I'm only going to let you get six hours after five days. How good is your math score? Now, here's a very interesting finding that uh, has occurred when you do experiments like this, because one of the first questions uh, uh, researchers will ask people that are enrolled in these studies is, how well do you think you're going to do? <laughs> how well do you think you're going to do? You know, if you only need, if I, I only give you six hours and you need eight hours, how well do you think you're going to do? And universally, Carla, they'll all say, oh, I'm going to get a 92. I always get a 92. Do you know what the average is on tests like this? 
with people that need eight hours of sleep but only got six for five nights in a row, the average is 28%. And they are stunned. Oh, my God. They can't believe the erosion and the inability to perceive the erosion. I'm, I'm convinced that's why we often sacrifice sleep is because we don't understand how much we're being effaced how much erosion uh, cognitive uh, uh, potential is, is being damaged. And it can take a long time to recover from that sleep. So if I were to say anything to you, Carla, the, the most profound uh, lesson to us in the sciences these days in terms of cognitive output needed for knowledge management is make sure everybody gets their sleep all the time. Darn it. Pay attention to your sleep. <laughs> Don't I sound like a physician, right? I mean, it sound like your family doc right? or your mother. Hey, make sure you get a good night's sleep. Here's an interesting thing that you can show. We even know when you should sleep if you have a problem to solve. This is a, 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 a study that's been done so many times you could do it almost in your sleep. Just kidding. The, um, we actually know how to take advantage of this repetition thing that occurs in the brain. If you, uh, 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 what was done is that, uh, uh, we'll go back to math again. A bunch of math graduate students, I think they were, were given during the course of the day, and by the way, they were randomly assigned into one of two groups, were given a bonehead second-order differential equation to solve. So tough stuff, but they were given the bonehead way to do it. Unbeknownst to these math graduate students who were enrolled in this experiment, there was a beautiful, elegant way to solve these math problems. But the researchers never told the graduate students that. What they wanted to find out, Carla, was to find out how many of those graduate students actually could spontaneously come up with the beautiful, elegant way to solve these problems on their own, the spontaneous interaction. Group A was given the bonehead way to solve the problem and the math problem for, at 8 o'clock in the morning, and they were allowed to go on it all day. So for about eight hours, they could uh, work on it. The other group, Group B, were given the math problems at 8 o'clock at night, no kidding, then they went to sleep. Then they got up in the morning and hit it again. And the question you can ask, time on task is going to be the same for each group. It's just that group B got an eight-hour period of sleep. And the question was asked was, how many in each of the groups got the beautiful, elegant, spontaneous way to solve this problem? The answer in the group that started at 8 o'clock in the morning was 22%. If you could insert into it an eight-hour sleep and you were in group B, you, uh, the answer to how many got the spontaneous way was 68%. No kidding. 3x more. And that's routinely done. So if I were to say anything as we uh, uh, close, begin to close this conversation, one of the most important things the brain sciences could tell people in knowledge management is quit having lousy sleep hygiene. Pay attention to that more than you pay attention to your stock portfolio. And make because it will go govern and guide your ability to be productive in an increasingly knowledge-based culture. Here, here, I support that, and, and wish that we had more time. But we all need to go take a nap. <laughs> so, Carla, let's get off the phone now and go yeah, take right. a nap. What do you say? Oh, let's do it. <laughs> this is true. Uh, truly, this is fabulous, and I think it gives people just a taste of the kind of of uh, knowledge they can gain by reading brain rules uh, at night and in the morning. And, yes. uh, and also what you're going to talk to us about at our Knowledge Management Conference coming up April 28th and 29th here in Houston. So one of the other things, I'll give people another quick 
sneak preview is that you're going to be able to share with them one of your brain rules for presenters, which is that people don't pay attention to boring things, and you're going to tell people how they can avoid being boring, and you have certainly avoided that today. So. <laughs> well, I look forward to it, Carla. I think we're going to have a lot of fun together. All right, and if you guys want to know more about John, you can find him uh, easily on the web, but also look for his book and books, Brain Rules, and you can come and see him at the conference. If you want to know more about APQC, you can go to our website, www.apqc.org. Thanks for listening and have a great day.